Welcome to the second episode of Intelligence Espresso from the Security Distillery Podcast. Every week we aim to distill world affairs in the field of security to provide our listeners with vitalizing morning brief. This is Sabina, coming to you from the foot of the Dolomites in Trento, North Italy. Today we'll be covering from the situation in Ukraine to the protesters again on the streets of France. But first... Back to 2015, Silicon Valley Bank's chief executive Greg Becker argued before Congress that the 40 billion threshold stipulated under the Dodd-Frank banking legislation was unnecessary and that mid-sized or regional banks did not present systemic risks. Years later, in 2018, President Trump signed the bill with the threshold for banks that are required to conduct annual stress checks which would require them to be subject to stricter regulatory requirements. And this law is being cited as the major cause of the recent collapse of SVB, the tech lender, and might trigger the most significant financial crisis since 2008. The bank's focus on lending to tech startups left it vulnerable to the ups and downs of the industry, and when the tech market took a downturn, the bank was left with a large number of bad loans. As it stands, the bank shared on the 14th of March that they are still open for business and are hard to work bringing all systems and solutions back online to support their customers. The domino, however, continued. Since the collapse of SVB, Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank suffered a sheer slump. This was caused by a number of reasons, including multiple scandals which resulted in top management changes, multi-billion dollar losses, and in a popular strategy. As an insult to injury, Credit Suisse's largest shareholder, the National Bank of Saudi Arabia, said it would not continue to provide additional funding to the institution to get out of the trouble. A highly charged external environment with the collapse of SVB, the market's risk aversion, Credit Suisse's trouble exacerbated the concerns. Stock in Europe and the US also plunged in response. Whispers of the layman moment are once again rampant. Shifting from a potential economic crisis to the political domain, the U.S. has long understood that they need allies to geopolitically counter China's influence, seeing it as the largest security challenge they face. And here we go, all coups on the table again, but this time comes with more submarines. The leaders of the United States, the U.K. and Australia have unveiled a detailed plan to build a new fleet of nuclear-powered submarines recently. Under the AUKUS Pact, Australia will first receive at least three nuclear-powered submarines from the United States. Starting this year, Australian military and civilian staff will integrate into the navies of the UK and the US, even within the submarine industrial bases of both countries. By 2027, the US and UK intend to alternate their nuclear-powered submarines via HMAS starting close to Perth, as a means to enhance the training of the Australians. The Alliance will also use cutting-edge technology to collaborate on a new fleet, including reactors built by Britain's Rolls-Royce. It is a massive arms deal, at least three nuclear submarines rolling with billions of dollars. But at a strategic move, it is even bigger. 
Beijing has strongly condemned the deal as a blatant act that constitutes serious nuclear proliferation risks, undermines international non-proliferation system, fuels arms races, and hurts peace and stability in the region. China's mission to the UN tweeted, "Quote." The irony of all coups is that two nuclear weapon states who claim to uphold the highest nuclear non-proliferation standard are transferring tons of weapons-grade enriched uranium to a non-nuclear weapon state, clearly violating the object and purpose of the NPT. So, where will this lead in the Pacific? For the designers of all coups, the pact is not to wage a war, but rather to prevent one. Being justified as a classic act of deterrence, it aims to discourage China from displaying its military strength in Asia Pacific. But by actively engaging in military competition with China in Asia, would it provoke the very war it is trying to prevent? The peak, however, came not only from China in the Pacific, but also from France, Britain's neighbor across the English Channel. Back to September 2021, the cancellation of the submarine program between Australia and France since 2016 already irritated the blue. Even though President Joe Biden emphasized that AUKUS was about quote investing in our greatest source of strength, our alliances, France felt betrayed. As Jean-Yves Le Drian, France Foreign Minister, put it, someone lied. Snubbed over subs, President Macron might be more enthusiastic about boosting European autonomy. France, the EU's leading military power, sees its suspicion of the Anglophone allies as justified. Under the 2022 EU Strategic Compass and in line with the gradual reshaping of the Asia-Pacific geopolitics, the EU might as well need to recalibrate. As we say, one window closes, another opens. Following the three-day naval exercises earlier this year by France and India, Macron and Modi spoke last week. India will be glad to receive more attention from a big arms supplier, and in line with India's notion of non-alignment, some help with nuclear submarines will be also appreciated, whether from France or AUKUS. But now the strategic situation in Asia Pacific is again in the heat of the battlefield of great power politics. And now let's talk about France. Quote: The Prime Minister may, after deliberation by the Council of Ministers, make the passing of finance bill or social security financing bill an issue of a vote of confidence before the National Assembly. In that event, the bill shall be considered passed unless a motion of non-confidence, issued within the subsequent 24 hours, is carried as provided for in the foregoing paragraph. End quote from the Article 49.3 of the French Constitution of 1958. Last Thursday, the French government, fearful of the National Assembly, invoked this executive power of De Gaulle's Constitution to bypass the Parliament and increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. And this has sparked massive outrage across the country, with people taking the streets of Paris and regional capitals. The demonstrations have met with forceful riot police. And some of them have resulted in violent clashes between police officers and protesters, with tear gas, bottles, and fireworks thrown. Meanwhile, Parisian garbage workers are on strike, and major trade unions are uniting with left-wing parties in the mostly pacific contestations of the measure. Some refineries have stopped, and strikers have blocked several roads. And the police have banned protesters from going to one of the main squares of the capital, La Concorde, just a five-minute walk from the National Assembly. And hundreds of protesters have been detained. 
These actions and the government's move have been labeled as authoritarian by the opposition, which has already presented two no-confidence votes to stop legislation from passing. However, both left and right-wing opposition would have to unite, quite an improbable scenario. In the past weeks, social mobilization was already high, with millions of people in the streets. The move by Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, however, under the leadership of President Macron, has heightened tensions and substantially lowered the government's popularity. The bill will gradually increase the retirement age up to two years in 2030. It will also end with the special regimes of the railway and Parisian public transport workers regarding pension funds. International NGOs like Oxfam have also expressed their support for the protesters, who argue that at the age of 64, the new retirement age, one third of the poor workers have already died, much more than the richest swath of the population. Although the government is not afraid of being ousted, tensions and financial instability is one of the two pillars of the European Union should make us keep an eye on French streets. In Ukraine, the Institute for the Study of War this weekend has concluded that the Russian offensive operation in Luhansk Oblast has likely reached its culmination, as one observer noted on DW. However, this is military speak for exhaustion. Russian forces have, at a staggering loss, made only minimal tactical gains across entire front over the last few weeks, and have largely been kept in check by a number of minor counterattacks by Ukrainian forces. However, startling drone footage emerged last week of Russian forces hurting groups of Ukrainian civilians at a gunpoint in west of the Bakhmutka, the river which cuts through the city. The Ukrainian military blogger tweeting this noted rather eerily, "Their fate is unknown." The palace intrigue within the halls of power in Russia, which we embarked in our previous episode, has continued into this week. On last Thursday, Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin received a question. From the press regarding an alleged plot backed by Putin to undermine the mercenary organization, a report from the Institute for the Study of War noted this was likely a fabricated question from Brigozhin himself, as a way to bolster his standing as a player in the ongoing war and counter the possible efforts to stem his growing soft power in Russia, which we've previously spoke on. The ICC broke precedent last week in issuing warrant for Vladimir Putin for war crimes, accusing him of personal responsibility for the abduction and deportation of civilians, children in this particular case from occupied areas of Ukraine. It marks the first time the court has issued an arrest warrant against a leader of one of the permanent sitting members of the UN Security Council. The warrant was predictably dismissed by the Kremlin, as Russia does not recognize the court's jurisdiction or indeed extradite its citizens. However, this is not the empty formula that many are making it out to be. It is likely to be something of a practical annoyance for this septuagenarian leader for many, though hopefully few years to come. Any attempt to attend international summit in a country that recognizes the court's jurisdiction, say, will be asterisked with the possibility that Putin may face arrest. It is also assumed that this is a part of a wider case being built against the Russian officials for crimes against humanity and genocide. The gathering of this evidence has been in recent weeks stymied by Pentagon officials, who fear that trying a state that does not recognize the court's jurisdiction, like Russia, sets a precedent for cases to be brought against other states that do not recognize the court's jurisdiction, like America.
One practical way to get past this impasse might be to not commit war crimes in the first place, observed by one of our writers. And as for the day, remember to follow us, the Security Distillery Podcast, and see you next week.